Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Homie. I am your host, and I am once again honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. Here at the Business Creators Radio Show, we go where you go to have those aha moments and mastermind experiences that bring you that much closer to your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Occasionally, you may hear ambient noises in the background. We may be out in the field. Today, I come to you from one of my high-tech studios, which happens to be my living room couch, where I'm camped out here with my elaborate equipment consisting of a laptop and a headset, and I'm settled in with my office supervisors, Princess Alessandra Francesca and Princess Stella Juliana, who, for those of you who are relatively new to this, are my cats. But they are my supervisors, although I will tell you that bring your cat to work day is usually a bust. I'll tell you this one time, Stella put the put the coffee on in the morning and she just disappeared while it was still percolating and that was... We didn't see her again until quitting time. It's really weird stuff. So anyway, what we want to cover today is digital transformation. And when that gets stuck, what do you do? How do you get your organization moving? This may seem like a very broad concept. We're going to narrow it for you. And I'm going to allow my guests to sort of take us along that journey. Let's introduce him. His name is Patrick McCreesh. He's an organizational expert with decades of experience in Fortune 500, public and private organizations worldwide. He's the author, along with Victoria Grady, of Stuck, How to Win at Work by Understanding Loss. He's a managing partner of Symmetry, which is spelled S-I-M-A-T-R-E-E, and serves as adjunct faculty at, or excuse me, adjunct faculty at Georgetown University and George Mason University Business School. Wow. Okay, Patrick McCreech, come on in. The weather's fine. <laughs> Thanks, Adam. Great to be here. All right. So I read off a snippet of your official bio. It's so impressive. I'm not sure if I'm worthy to be here. And this is my show. So what we want to do here before we get into some of our conversation about digital transformation, getting unstuck, etc., is let's hear it from you rather than me. Tell us a bit about your journey and what's brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of different things that kind of converged for me. I, you know, the first is uh, a real desire to help people and organizations figure out what works for them, uh, figure out how to get what they're looking for out of whatever it is they're trying to accomplish. And, you know, the way that I think about that and the way that I, that I, that I try to focus on that 
is through this concept of, of constant alignment. So that, that, that comes in the form of the company that I have and work with and my partners and symmetry, which is designed all around alignment. You know, we like to say that we're trying to empower uh, people by you know aligning exceptional people with the empowerment they're looking for. So that's that's really you know one piece of it. the The second piece is really then how do you bring in the right tools and technology in order to make the human side of it, which is so critically important, uh, really become even greater. Uh, with the empowerment of technology. And that's where kind of we get into things like data science and digital transformation, those emerging and now really full running trends in our organizations that are seeking to create greater value, not out of organizations, but out of human time. And I think that's an important distinction that we often make is that really digital transformation is about allowing humans to do more faster. It is not about getting humans out of the way. And then the third piece that comes along with that is then the desire, if you're trying to align things the right way and you're trying to bring technology to the table in order to make that happen, is how do you get humans to adopt and use that effectively. And that leads us to uh, the book Stuck, where we focus on exactly that question. You got great people, you got great technology, the technology is not being used by your great people, why? Uh, and that's and that's kind of how these three trends and, and my personal journey converge to, to where we are today. Yeah, yeah. So the title of the book, of course, is Stuck. And so how do we get stuck? What's that look like? Yeah, so the biggest reason we get stuck is 22 million years of evolutionary history that all sits on top of our head. And it's our, it's our brain and it's, its evolutionary path that's led it uh, to this point in time where we expect that 22 million years of evolution to be able to change overnight based on 30 days of research in a technology lab in Silicon Valley. And that doesn't happen. It's the classic story of the tortoise and the hare, but the, the, the difference is in this story, the tortoise of the brain always wins. There's not a chance yeah. the hare is ever going to catch it. And that's what we're <sighs> what we focus on is why does that, why does the seemingly logical brain continue to slow us down? And it's because the, the brain is only partly logical. And, and another part of the brain is incredibly, incredibly emotional. And a third part of the brain, that's right, there's three parts there. The third part is incredibly reactive. And so what happens is when we introduce a new technology, the, there's going to be a reaction. The question is, will the reaction come from the logical part or the, or the more emotional part of the brain? And that, that more emotional brain, uh, that, that brain that is actually partly emotional and partly based on past experience. And so if you now take that emotional part that we, we all know to, and have probably said someone's acting emotionally, really what they're doing is acting intuitively because they're taking this concept we love to talk, call memory, emotion, and learning that all sits in our brain and they're bringing it forward. And they're saying, oh, I've been here before. I know what this feels like. And I know what I've done in the past, my learned behavior. And, and, and when it's happened before, it wasn't good and it didn't feel good. And that's what's emerging is that emotion of this didn't feel good before, it's happening again, and I don't like it now any more than I liked it before. 
That's what we're reacting to. Could be great intentions on all insides, could be great technology solutions, could be great other types of solutions that could really be better for the world. But that reaction that we're having is really coming from our brain telling us, you've seen this before and you didn't like it and you're not going to like it this time. Let's look at, if we go beyond business, look at generational patterns. Yes. Uh, And the old cliche that uh, if you are having some sort of argument or dispute with your significant other, it's likely that your great grandparents had the exact same argument over the exact same thing. Mm. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with that. I also think that what's interesting is that the generations here are, are in, in, in weird ways kind of going to battle with trends of the past that they may have created themselves. Like you, you look at, you look at like uh, the, this whole uh, concern around uh, multi-generational workforce today, and you see leaders and people who are, who are kind of challenged with what they're seeing in the, in the workforce. What they're really seeing is themselves in the past and that, yes, things have changed in terms of what tools and technology and stories and narratives are around a particular generation. But you're absolutely right on In reality, what people are critiquing when they're looking at, at, at a current generation is the same behavior that's been around for hundreds, if not thousands of years and beyond, because these are, these are lasting biological responses and behaviors that, that we know to be true. We just may not like the way they're manifesting in this generation when in a past generation, we would have said, oh, that's, that's just the way life is. Uh, so, so we do see this time and time again. You are right. No, I, I disagree. You know what it is? It's these lazy millennials who oh, no, expect no. Ever, expect everything handed to them. Uh, they have no appreciation for hard work, no respect for generations that have gone before them. It's all about themselves and everybody kowtowing to them. Yeah, I can't buy into <laughs> that. <laughs> I can't. No, here's, I, I bring that up for a reason. Uh, that is so not the case. Yeah, it's true. What we ha- what the way I see it, is, you know, the word millennials is thrown out there, but there are at least three other generations that have followed the millennials. And when you put that group together, they now form the absolute majority of the corporate workplace, the small business workplace, and the entrepreneurial space. Uh, They are the majority. They are the dominant factors. So there's nothing you can really dismiss here. Here's what that generation, and we might as well say the word millennials because it started with them. Just if you look at chronologies, they were the first to benefit from this in a meaningful way. Generations before them, the Xers like me, the baby boomers, go the greatest generation, keep going back, did not have access to information the way the millennials and the newer generations did. That was the first generation that could access information quickly, systematically, and reliably, well, that's a relative term, over the internet. They had access to get answers to questions. They had access to bodies of knowledge that others before them simply didn't have, a combination of it not being proliferated the way the internet did, and a combination of it being censored 
because it was easier to block them from receiving that information before the internet came along and just went right around the barriers that had been set up to deny them this. So with millennials, they're not lazy, spoiled, entitled, or anything like that. I believe that it's just my experience that we can look at this 20 different ways, but it really comes down to one thing. Your millennials, your Gen Zers, keep going down the line, are actually very passionate about the work that they do. And they want to feel that what they do makes some sort of difference and conveys some sort of value. And they want to feel as if they're making an investment in it that's going to pay off. Yeah, I mean, f- further than that, I would say that that, <clears throat> that trend that you're describing of the combination of purpose, passion, and information is, is really something that, that does go back very much to the boomers who were, who were described as you know a generation that was spending too much time in college getting information in that form was too passionate about political issues and not focused enough on work and you know then found too much purpose in the things that they were focused on uh, rather than being focused on just getting their nose to the grindstone and manufacturing and the kinds of things of the past so the parallels do extend to past generations if you generalize them to to the trends of of things like information, purpose, passion, I think you're right. And and I think that what we're seeing today is just that that same concept on hyperspeed. Plus, you are always going to have some outliers that are going to inform the stereotype. And there's definitely a guy who's still sitting in his VW bus from 1965, right? out on the, on the coast and who, who quit school and is still there. And that's cool. There's also going to be a millennial who's never going to get a job and is going to expect it to be handed to them. Both things are probably true. That doesn't mean that's the whole generation. You're always going to find one example of whatever it is you're trying to prove. That's true. Right. And, and, but, but I agree with you. I mean, the entrepreneurial class today is, is going to, and is driven by uh, the millennial generation. You are right about that. And it, and and so it 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 can't be it can't be true that the entire generation is lazy and the entire generation is entrepreneurial. It can be true that some people are lazy and some people are entrepreneurial, and they all happen to be in the same generation. Well, we can also look at this. We can go one more step with this. Now you see, say for example, the Gen Xers and the Baby Boomers who are still in the workforce, still in the entrepreneurial space, who see that this shift has taken place and they're now saying, well, yeah, I'd like those things too. I want to feel like my work is innovative. I want to feel like that that my company, my business, my organization are in a better place because of what I'm doing here. I want to feel that I'm investing and in getting a return on in it, that investment. Why can't I have those things? Yeah, and, I mean, and, 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 and I'm not going to and, I, and I'm going to say, no, no, I'm not going to do things because somebody, just because somebody uh, who's higher than me on this thing called an org chart uh, wants to press their privilege on me. And that's not going to work. And, and as far as telling me about the uh, company loyalty thing, well, I've been around long enough to know that there's no such thing. Yeah. <clears throat> well, that's because it's it's been destroyed. Yeah. And, and, and you know, there's a lot of, 
there's a lot of people who want to look to a generation and say that the generation has destroyed the concept and has gone towards the gig economy. But I, I agree with you. I actually think corporations through the desire to drive margins have broken any sort of cor corporate social agreement, a contract, if you will, with employees. And it just doesn't look the same. It's not bad. I mean, I, I look, I, I run my own business and work with a, a series of great people who, who handle capital. I don't think capitalism is bad. I think it's great. Yeah. Having said that, I do think that if you want to look at generations today and say, why are they looking for gig economies? Why are they jumping from job to job? Why are they behaving this way? They're behaving this way because there's no company saying to them, here's what you get at the end of 40 years. And it's a pension and it's, it's security. If that doesn't exist, then you have to, you have to create it yourself. And that's now back on the individual. It's, it's no longer going to be provided in some sort of relationship with corporate America. Therefore, there's a change in behavior. That's logical. By the way, this is nothing new. 20 years ago, I was getting ready to finish up my MBA. Uh, my, my concentration is human resource management. My goal at the time was to become a training and direct development director for a Fortune 100. I had a full-time job that I held down while I was pursuing the MBA full-time. And uh, in a way, it was sort of related to where I was looking to go professionally in, in, after a fashion. I remember being given career advice from various folks. Uh, it was many different slants on it. But one thing they had in common was they said, after you get your MBA, basically, you have a decision point you have to make. You're either going to start your own business or you're going to work for another company. But the last thing you want to do is stay with the company you've been at for more than a year after you finish the MBA. Because what's going to happen is companies are going to look and say, wow, you were there for two eight years during your MBA, then you're there another year. You've worked for this company for three years. You mean you aren't going anywhere? Right. Regardless of any opportunities for advancement, that was already the view 20 years ago. And I got so many different permeations of it, but that was the common thread, which is somebody looks at your resume and they see you were just at the same company for all these years. They're going to look at that. Even if you got promoted four times, they're going to look at that and they're going to say, what the how are what the hell are they doing just sitting there? Why would yeah. we want to hire this person? You're not going places. Yeah. So there was already an expectation that you would be moving to different companies. Yeah. And see, I, you know, as as someone who hires, I'm not sure I I agree that that's the right approach. I think there's I think there's gotta be a story and a narrative as to you know, what brought you into an organization? What kept you there? And, and, and why, you know, why are you moving on now? And that's what I'm always looking for when I talk to people. And I think that gets back to kind of, you know, the organizational side of the, the research that we do, because we're always looking at, you know, to what degree do the same concepts that cause people to get stuck for their own inability to move forward with change, in what ways do those same concepts help us get stuck in an organizational culture 
help us get stuck to each other so that we create strong relationships? And, and how does that turn into a positive that, that helps us build something, not just become a negative that we're fighting against? Uh, because I, I would say, you know, in the scenario you laid out, if, if you've been there and you are moving up and you are developing yourself and doing different things, then that organization is caring for you and helping you develop. And, and that's a reason to show some loyalty, uh, even, if you're, uh, even if your paycheck is not as big as you could get somewhere else immediately. Perhaps the benefit is that you're growing and developing in ways you couldn't elsewhere. Right, 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 right. So the subtitle of your book mm-hmm. is How to Win in Business by Understanding Loss. So the question is, what role does loss have in business? And I'm curious why loss is spelled in capital letters. Sure. So the the concept here that I threw out uh, a few minutes ago around memory, emotion, and learning and its importance in our brain is really that it sits at the epicenter of how we connect with and attach to different parts of an organization, and even our daily life. So things like routines, habits are all anchored in the same part of of our brain where we form these memories, develop emotion, and get learned behaviors. So we call that MEL for shorthand. This is the, the anchor point biologically. What happens when you have some sort of change in an organization is that Whatever that change is, it is affecting either a a memory uh, or a learned behavior that will elicit some sort of emotion. And that is, is, is kind of upsetting Mel. And when it upsets Mel, that loss is causing you to react with some sort of emotion that is based on past experience or, or based on the behaviors you've learned, whatever that may be. Um, A good example might be simply, we're changing the technology platform for daily use. Something like a supply chain organization may change its ERP. Something like um, uh, a financial services organization may change its case management platform. That's a big change for someone who spends every day in that system. They build an attachment to that system because it's the way they do their work. And when that system is changed or taken away, there's a sense of loss. And organizations don't do enough to recognize that sense of loss. Individuals don't do enough to recognize that sense of loss and respond accordingly. Now, there was a lot of literature around this that came out at the start of the pandemic and how people were going through these these spirals of, of what really were grief cycles. Well, loss and grief are different. Loss is is something that's been taken away unexpectedly that you thought was going to be there. Grief grief comes from death. Those are different things. We're not looking for people to go through grieving cycles or for organizations to pursue people down a path of grief. We are encouraging organizations, leaders, and peers to acknowledge the sense of loss that comes from change in organizations. Yeah. Yeah. So I, uh, I'm glad we also had a chance to explore the Mel concept a little bit more. I caught that earlier, memory, emotion, learning. And that goes, as I understand it, that goes back to where we kind of began with this is that I think you just defined that there are three sections. Yep. 
of the brain. We're used to thinking left brain and right brain, but you've identified three. Yeah. So instead of thinking as two halves of the brain, like we tend to look at the brain from above, like you said, and think left brain, right brain, but now look at the brain from the side and think from the smallest part of the inner inner brain as what is often considered the reptilian brain, where we, where our reactive systems come. These are, these are all about survival, right? Then the next layer is this layer that developed um, as later in, in, in evolutionary history, where, where we developed our more, what we call mammalian brain. And that, that brain is all about uh, these, these areas I'm talking about around emotion and, and memory and learning, it's intuitive. It's where we kind of do things that we wanted to put on repeat, like maybe hitting a baseball, shooting a basketball, driving, the things, walking, things that we don't want to think through. We kind of put somewhere between those two layers so that we react for survival purposes, but then that we also basically get it under control for, for uh, day-to-day use. And then the third layer, uh, that top layer, is where all of the concepts that we call logic sit. And too often, when we go to change things in organizations, we think that logic layer is where things are going to happen. But that middle layer is where memory, emotion, and learning sits. And that's the layer that we have to work in. And and technically, the, the specific area of the brain is called the limbic system, where this all resides. But that, that MEL that we're talking about, that's who we want people to focus more on, the MEL in each person or Melanie for, 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 for the, the women in the crowd who may not want to use MEL. Then focus on that and think about how you can focus in on changing a memory, an emotion, or a learned behavior, and then you'll get a better response. Right, 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 right. Certainly. So beyond the individual. Yeah. Uh, stuck doesn't just your, your book is I've understand it doesn't just focus on the impact of male and loss on the individual, but also goes beyond that into groups and entire organizations. So how does that all unfold or permeate? So in a, in a group setting, uh, like a team, for, for example, what you can imagine is the complexities that, that start to emerge when you have a group of, let's say, 10 people sitting around the table, and they're each coming to the table with their own mel. And that, that, that mel is interacting with everyone else's mel. Uh, and, and the question starts to become, where does the shared experience start to emerge? So we, we, we can say that, you know, 10 people started on the same day in an organization, 10 people are all going to be a part of the same team. And when it's all said and done, 10 people will be here for two years. They will have the same roles, the same titles, the same jobs, and they will still walk away with a different mouth because we know that the way that people interact with the organization, with the parts of the organization, they will create their own memories. They will associate different emotions with that, and they will leave with different learned behaviors, partly because of what they bring to the table at the start. They come to the table with an approach to how they're going to interact with the world that is formed from an earlier age and, and how they're going to use their MEL, even from the early days of childhood. And so when you're thinking about groups, what you could start to think differently about is what is my approach to this versus your approach? And we've, we've narrowed it down to kind of, there's, there's four different styles for this. 
And those four different styles uh, roughly uh, equate to this concept called attachment styles. And it gets into how people associate with the organizations and, and people around them. And, and so we use those as a way and a lens for looking at groups and determining how two people in a group will interact with each other, three people in a group, four, and so on. And, and that's how it can be it can be powerful to understand the, the interactions between people in a group. When you go to an organization, you get into things like culture. You get into things like leadership development. And there, you're trying to figure out how can we build and define a culture that actually brings people together around a shared now, brings people together to um, build a, a memory, and, and that memory has a positive emotion attached to it. But also, how are we going to keep that nimble enough to change it when we need to, to be able to push back on it and make it flexible? And a lot of organizations go for corporate culture, and they define corporate culture, and they want uh, people to be reliant on it, but they don't want people to be resilient. And if you're not building the reliance and the resilience at the same time, it's going to be hard for them to be flexible later. And so that's, that's a big part of one of the lessons that we pull out at the organizational level. Wow. Okay. So yeah, that's really, really very interesting. And, you know, what I'm thinking of, and maybe this is very micro, is just what we see happens when transformation gets stuck and we mm -hmm. run into these things, uh, the impact of mal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I know, at least in my experience, that there's some sort of trouble on the horizon, even if it hasn't been yet been clearly or specifically identified. Uh, if, if I hear, well, that's how we've always done it as the actual rationale for why somebody wants to follow some policy or some procedure. You got it. That is the biggest signal that Mel is in the room, so to speak. And you're, you're lucky if someone says that to you instead of giving you excuse after excuse after excuse to fight with, because then you know that all you're dealing with is Mel. Now, that doesn't mean it's easy to change. It's not. You have to break that down, figure out what is the, the memory, emotion, the learning, and how can, you, how can you shift it. But at least you know then that there's no logic behind the behavior and you can, you can move from there. And one of the ways that I think we're going to be most effective at kind of taking this knowledge and doing something real with it going forward is something we've already started doing at Symmetry, which is we have stopped talking about change. Uh, there's a lot of literature out there that says you need to communicate the change before it's coming. You need to then get people excited about it, get them kind of energized about the change coming. And then you start to show them things and then you teach them how to do it. And once you've done all of that, they'll be, they'll be ready to move forward. Back up. You can't get people excited about a change that they can't see and feel. If they can't see and feel it, they're not going to build a new mill. And instead, you're going to keep giving them the opportunity to anchor back to their old Mel. In fact, an anchor isn't a bad visual for what we're talking about with Mel. If you keep saying, hey, this thing's coming on the horizon, Mel is sitting there like an anchor holding them back, going, wait, I don't know it. I don't trust it. 
And then if you say, you know, six months later, hey, it's still coming, Mel's just getting stronger. It's getting to be a bigger anchor. On the other hand, in a digital transformation, if you can start by showing it and start showing what it looks like and showing the tangible change to their life, maybe showing some of those benefits to their life and how it's going to make things a little bit easier for them at the start, they'll start to develop these visual cues and getting more senses involved in the process helps to change the mel faster, gets them past anchoring and gets them toward something that's a little more progressive. Right. Yeah. How do you, I guess my question is, how do you break through this whole thing uh, <laughs> when Mel is present in the room? Uh, I've just very simply found it sometimes a lot easier said than done, no matter how much theory you want to get into. I'm not a therapist and I yeah. can't play one on this call. Right. But I end up being one in a lot of conference rooms. You you have to figure out what the memory is, and sometimes it's gonna. This is gonna sound really crazy, but sometimes there is an actual loss. Sometimes there is a traumatic experience, or sometimes it's a very positive relationship that is attached to whatever change you're trying to get in the organization, and you got to get people to realize that it's going to be okay when this change comes. And let me tell you what I actually mean there. And there's, and our book has a number of these real stories in there. And, you know, we change the names and the organizations to protect the innocent, but there are, but these are real stories of people we've worked with. There are, there are cases of, of organizations we've worked with where people were really attached to their case management system because they lost their best friend while they were using that system and they came back to that system and that system was one thing they could do and it made them feel comfortable again. And that's a real loss with a connected to a technology. And then when you go to change the technology, they have to revisit that real loss. That's okay. That's the memory that's coming out when you go to make a change. But if you're not willing to go to the person level to understand why they're that attached to that system, you're not going to be able to make the change. And so it's impossible to do that across a thousand person organization as a single change management leader. Like that's not going to work. That's where you have to actually train middle managers to have a level of empathy and understanding to be able to do that kind of work. And that is very hard, Adam. But that that is the kind of, of, of level of engagement that it can take to really get 100% adoption and really get people through those kinds of tough times. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, you know, I guess it is the case that sometimes I find that we do end up, whether you want to call us therapists or coaches <laughs> or what have you, even if we swear we don't do these things, we find ourselves in these roles. Why do you think that happens? Because um, there's not a single discipline today for, for business. B business is such a multidisciplinary space. And I think those of us who are willing to go into different disciplines will, will find us ourselves there. I mean, I'm a, I'm a history and foreign affairs grad who's writing a book on organizational psychology. Like, yeah, and how did, how did I end up there? I was willing to go there. Uh, I think other people who are who are more willing to go into 
uh, different coding languages end up there, finding themselves as experts in different coding fields that they may have never seen themselves in. I think it's that willingness to always say yes that just gets you into these spaces. And if you're really looking to solve hard problems and really help people, you know, for people like us, that means we end up putting people, you know, on the proverbial couch and helping them get through it. Yeah. Well, I, I, I got you, man. I, I understand it. Uh, so toward the end of your book, and I'm so excited to read this myself, I'm going to have to get my own copy of stuck. You uh, take a forward looking view yeah. and you're trying to look forward to the issues that will cause people, teams, organizations of all sizes to get stuck in the future. So first of all, if you could define for me what it means to get stuck in the future, and then based on what's going on today, what do you think are some of the bigger challenges that organizations are going to be facing over the coming years? Yeah. So, so just what we're looking at when we say stuck in the future is we're looking at what are the trends in, in organizations that we think will cause people to be stuck uh, as they as they go into the future, and it's and it's it's basically like what is the digital transformation of tomorrow? What's that issue? Um, same, it, it's not. We're not trying to um, hopefully change the, the the paradigm on why they're stuck. We think it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, still the brain holding us back. You know, it'll just be a couple of years later. But I but I think the issues that are facing organizations, the changes that are really causing uh, the challenges for organizations. You know, it's it's probably breaks down into into three three big buckets. I, I think one is definitely societal trends that that are coming into the workplace and that we're we either are or are not ready for. So that's things like uh, diversity and inclusion, um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and and how well we handle that uh, as individuals, groups, and organizations. How well do we handle personal wellness and the wellness of others around us and, and mindfulness towards, towards others and for ourselves? How do organizations handle things like political polarization? How do they enable that and or shut it down in their organization? Those, those, that's one bucket around the societal factors that I think organizations are going to have to deal with. And I think those issues will cause people to get stuck and it will mostly be below the surface because they will be telling you they won't make the changes you want them to make around process and technology. But those issues will probably be sitting at the core of a lot of stuck behavior, uh, to, to, to use the most objective term. The second is in the technology sphere where you know we know these trends that are coming around continued digital transformation People like to talk about AI, but AI is not going to come into organizations without a period where there's a human interaction with the technology, uh, either data-driven technology or robotic technology or augmented reality tech. Those things are all going to have to come in with human empowerment and enablement before they're going to come in in full with the reins taken off. And so that means adoption. Uh, I think there's also probably a whole range of things like, like the distributed ledger technology, the, you know, the so-called blockchain, but blockchain's only one tech around it. But that whole set of emerging technologies 
is all going to challenge organizations in the way that they think and organize information and material, but it's also going to challenge the individual human in the way that they interact with their job and the work that they do on a daily basis. And then, you know, the third bucket is really um, around kind of connectivity and, and closeness. And this is really driven so much by the pandemic. And, and how do we think about that multi-generational workforce? How do we connect as organizations? Do, are we working remotely? Are we, are we together? When are we together? Why are we together? And, and all of that uh, in the workplace, I think will determine how people learn, what kind of cultures we build, and whether or not organizations feel like they're creating connectivity, and whether people really feel like they have anything to add and connect with and stay close to organizations. Right. Absolutely. So uh, as we uh, as we finish up here, and this has been a fantastic conversation I've thoroughly enjoyed. The first thing I want to do is I want to invite all of our listeners to visit your website uh, for Symmetry, which is spelled www.simatree and then the number one dot com. So it's www.symmetry1.com. And that's where you can discover uh, the various solutions that Symmetry offers when it comes to this whole thing of helping you get your digital transformation unstuck and getting your organizational organization moving. I also encourage everybody to buy the book, Stuck, How to Win in Business by Understanding Loss. Uh, I'm going to pick it up myself. I love Anything that brings me just that much closer to achieving my intersection and my brilliance and my passion. So I'm really looking forward to that. And what I want to do here is I have a couple more things for you. The first is, let's say you have somebody who is in a place, and I've been there myself. I went through a period in my life where I spent three years And the way I describe it is I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. So when you have somebody who's so stuck, they can't even see what the next step in their business looks like or what their future looks like. Where do you go from there when you can't even see? Well, obviously there's, there's different levels of that, Adam. And, you know, again, not a professional in the space where some people need help way beyond what, what I'm about to offer, but, but this does get into, again, finding those things that have effectively activated the right parts of Mel in the past. And so, you know, one of the things that we've put into the book are a series of exercises in each chapter Some of them are designed to be deeply personal for questions kind of like these, you know, where we, where we ask people to think about a time when they were happy, think about a time when they enjoyed what they were doing. You know, those kinds of questions that you often find yourself asking peers or asking yourself when you're struggling to figure out what comes next are there because those questions actually make sense to, to activate those memories and those emotions and help you figure out what were those behaviors that were leading to that. And sometimes those things have nothing to do with the workplace. And you may say, oh, I was happy because I was 
around this person a lot, uh, you know, a friend, an acquaintance, a significant other. Or you may say that I was happy because I had a good group of friends at that particular organization, and it was a golden era of that place, and I'll never get it again. But you may be able to break it down and say, no, I, it was actually these pieces of work I enjoyed. Um, so that that's one kind of very personal thing that, that people can do. Now, there's, there's also finding that alignment with an organization that wants that same thing. So, you know, we do this all the time. When we finish our interview process and we're hiring people, the last interview is, is a bit of a reverse interview for their questions to us. Any organization that is not truly allowing people to do that reverse interview right now is not allowing people to align with them. And that's an important part of the process here, because if you do want to create organizations that create stickiness, you're going to need the organization and, and to, to be on trial with the person coming to you too, and allow them to ask those kinds of questions. Because let's imagine it was you and you had that period and you said, oh, the behaviors I liked were that um, counter to the culture today, I loved coming into an office and I want to be able to sit with a group of six or seven people every day. And so then you ask that question, is it, uh, is it possible to come into an office? Not required, but possible to. And the organization says, no, it's not possible. Well, then you, that, maybe that's not the right fit for you. So I, I, think it's, I think it is incumbent upon individuals to figure out what they want. And I think it's incumbent upon organizations to open the door for, or, for individuals to ask those questions. In fact, you know, this whole, this whole conversation around the great resignation, you know, I've, I've been telling people, I think it's really just the great realignment. People figured out what they wanted during the pandemic, and hopefully they're out there working with organizations that get them closer to what they really want and not just taking the job they had when the pandemic hit a couple of years ago. Wow. Uh, yeah. And as far as the great resignation goes, I've looked into this significantly myself, and I believe it really is an alignment. I believe that what it's doing is it's accelerating something that's been long overdue. Two things, actually, one of which is helping people find their place that is more aligned with the inter their intersection, their brilliance, and their passion. And second, to bring about changes in the workplace that have been needed for a long time. I have discussed at length on this show with various guests the question of why have we been applying industrial revolution techniques to knowledge workers? A hundred percent agree on that. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's, you can apply that to almost any function of business where the, the, the greatest and best thinking, the best practices of HR were developed during the industrial age. The best practices of learning were developed in the industrial age. The, you know, and when I say industrial, I mean kind of manufacturing concepts, like not truly the industrial age, but, but that, that kind of manufacturing mindset. And we're, we're using it all today. Um, Seth Godin talks about all that and how we need to break down educational processes to make them more aligned with the way people actually think today. Uh, there's something to that. Uh, we can't expect people to learn in a consistently linear fashion, uh, like it's a like it's a the like it's Henry Ford's production line. That's just not the way we see people learning today. We see them picking up, especially something like data science. We see people picking up a code, trying to solve a problem, and then going and watching a YouTube video and they get stuck. 
or looking for the open source code when they get stuck. And that's actually leveraging all that information that you were talking about at the outset that is available to uh, an entire generation today. It's using the information economy to inform the work they're developing. That's powerful. And, and that could not have been understood in a linear production life cycle. That can only be understood in a more ecosystem mindset where things are, are spread out and yet connected when necessary. That's where we need things to go across a whole series of, of different functions and capabilities. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I'm, I'm with you. So uh, we have uh, reached the, uh, the top of our conversation here. And, uh, and so we're gonna go ahead and wrap up. Patrick McCreesh, author of Stuck, How to Win in Business by Understanding, How to Win in Business by Understanding Loss. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and believe me in education. Oh, thank you, Adam. It's been great. I really appreciate the time. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.